Um, well, if you couldn't tell, I'm not Brian. Um, Brian's out four to six weeks with an injured knee. Um, so I'm taking over today. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Evan Valencia. I've been coming somewhat off and on for the last couple of years or so um, because I live down in Texas, actually, and come back only when they let me out. Um, but I am engaged to Eden. The wedding is later this summer in July. And so I'm the future son-in-law slash semi-regular attendee. Um, all right, we're going to be talking about Mark 8, verse 1 through 21 tonight. Um, it's a pretty familiar story for all of us that I think has a lot of uh, meaning and detail that you miss if you just kind of read it as, ooh, Jesus fed a whole lot of people. Um, so <laughs> we're going to go ahead and get into that. I'm going to read Mark 8, starting in verses just 1 through 10. Um, so y'all, if you have your Bibles, can follow along, and I'm in the ESV, which is the one that's like three to four Christian points above the NIV, and a little below the King James. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people? with bread here in this desolate place. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, I lost my place. Having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Okay, so we hear this story. And a lot of times when we read this account, we think, he fed 4,000 people, didn't he feed 5,000? Well, he did a few chapters earlier. Um, and one of the things that I'm somewhat embarrassed to say I just learned fairly recently is that this happened twice. Um, and so we can look at that and think, um, you know, it's interesting that he does kind of the same miracle twice like why would he do that um like a lot of the details of why that is are really really interesting we're going to spend the first kind of part of this focusing on that so i'm going to pause here and compare with the account of the feeding of the five thousand in mark 6. so mark 6 30 through 34 says the apostles turned to jesus and told him all that they had done and taught and he said to them come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot ahead from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when they, went, when they went on shore, they saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And it grew, as it grew late, the, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and fish? Wait, bread and give it to them to eat. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples and set, to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets of broken pieces of the, of the bread and the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, so we see a few key differences here. Um, and there is an idea out there that this is actually just a retelling of the same miracle. Um, I think that's not the case. I think we're going to see why that is. Um, the first thing to realize is just kind of Jesus's response to the crowd in the context of what's going on here. So first, in Mark 6, we see this is when the disciples are coming back from like the first time that Jesus has sent them out to go and preach and to teach. And he comes, they come back to him and he says, come away by yourselves. Let's go just take a rest for a while, um, as Jesus would often do early in the mornings by himself. Um, the second thing I want you all to see is when the crowd gets there, um, he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. If we look at Mark 8, um, the, the reason he has compassion on them is slightly different. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. It wasn't quite that they were like sheep without a shepherd, 
but just that they were hungry. Um, this first miracle, so Mark 6, when he does it the first time, this is taking place um, in the region of Bethsaida, and, which would have been a Jewish, Jewish town, and this crowd was then largely Jewish. Um, so I think the significance of him having <coughs> compassion on them in that way, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, is because these very much were the lost sheep of Israel, as Jesus said that he came for um, in other places in the Gospels. So if you look at the Mark 8 account, um, if you back up a little bit to Mark 7, I'm going to get my actual Bible because it's easier to read out of. Um, but if you back up a little bit to Mark 7, it actually shows that they were in a region called the Decapolis. And this was actually a Gentile area. Um, so the second crowd would have been mostly Gentile. So we can see that just between the difference in location of where these kind of took place, um, they were, in fact, separate events that kind of followed each other. And so I have a little map up here, which may or may not be super clear. Um, but on the left, you can kind of see Bethsaida up in the northeast area of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and that was the Jewish town uh, where Jesus would have fed the 5,000. And then on the right over kind of behind me is you see the Decapolis area kind of to the southeast. Um, and that was a different area that had just a different demographic. So we can see that these are um, two different, I don't know why I split my slides here. Oh, because it wants to do a fun transition. Okay. Um, we can see from the demographic of the people Jesus was speaking to, um, as well as a few of the details of the actual miracle, that these were um, two distinct events. Okay, so what did he feed them with? He fed them with bread and fish both times. He did the miracle um, in a similar fashion. So I wanted to look at what those symbolize. Start with bread. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor your fathers, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So we see very early on Jesus, or God, likening um, manna, or this bread, to his word. And that word manna in Hebrew actually means, you know, what is it? Because, I mean, if you saw food falling from the sky, that would probably be our similar reaction. You know, what is going on? What is it? What is it? Um, so it's very interesting that that is kind of their response to God's provision um, in this physical sense, um, but also even Deuteronomy says that that provision is God's word, not just physical food. So then we see later in the Gospels, in Mark 127, this is kind of the crowd's first response to Jesus' teaching when he comes in. Verse 27 says, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? a new teaching and with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And so we see Jesus's words and the man and the provision, the word of God, getting the same reaction from the Jewish people. And I don't think that's an accident. Jesus's words here are in a very real sense, the provision and spiritual gift of God given to us. So when he takes the bread and gives it to the people, the action is symbolic of his word being given to them, not only to instruct them, but also to sustain them. And this is why, as believers, we must be deeply rooted in the word daily, why we aren't. Um, and when we aren't, we should notice that. You know, it should affect us when we are not getting that spiritual food. Similar to in the Lord's Prayer, you know, he taught us to pray how? Give us this day our daily bread. Um, that is a daily thing that we have to always be going back to and returning to. Because um, we have, people are simply not self-sufficient. Okay, so that's kind of the bread. Um, is a picture of the words, the teachings of Jesus. What about the fish? I have a less solid kind of conclusion on these, but I wanted to just put out kind of a couple interesting ideas of what the fish could symbolize. Um, so first, in Habakkuk 1.14, it says, you have made mankind, or you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like the crawling things that have no ruler. The phrasing of no ruler is kind of, just this is kind of a little bit how my brain works, not saying this is the direct connection, um, but it just reminds me of the sheep with no shepherd. Um, and man being likened to fish here um, kind of gives us a picture of what maybe those fish might have symbolized. Look at Matthew 4, 19. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We've all heard this one, right? Um, and this is kind of how he, the wording that he used to connect with his disciples as he was calling them. They were fishermen by trade. And he kind of likened the the fish that they would catch to the men that they would be sent to catch later. Um, 
let me see where I'm at here. So this is just a little thought that I had while I was researching this, um, kind of how my brain works. I like to like put things together. So I'm going to give you all these next couple ideas, not as like concrete. I really think this is what it's saying, um, but it's just kind of ideas. Uh, where was I? Let's see. It's really interesting here that Jesus feeds the crowds in both miracles with fish then, as well as bread. So he's giving them as part of his provision, his word, and if fish are symbolic of men, then he also sends out people to take care of and to provide for other people. Um, just an interesting connection. Also, the story of Jesus when he walks up to his disciples, they're out, they've been fishing all day on the one side of their boat, have caught nothing, and they're all discouraged, and he says, throw the nets on the other side. And they go, Jesus, that's ridiculous. Like, we've been fishing all day. We're not going to catch anything. But they do it anyway. And all of a sudden, what happens? They have so many fish, their nets are breaking. Um, and so that was just a point I wanted to throw out there of, like, us as people, we can try and do good works for the kingdom as much as we want on our own power. Um, but until that action is informed by Christ, until we are living in obedience to him, will not be effective. One of the places I got this idea was Matthew 13, 47. Um, this is a parable that Jesus is telling, kind of the beginning of it, the parable of the nets. Um, he says in verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, the men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted it into good containers, sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it's kind of a similar gathering of fish into containers that we see in the feeding of the 10,000. And again, take this all with a grain of salt. This is just kind of how my brain works. Um, but I wanted to kind of throw that out there because I thought it was interesting if indeed that was the case that those, those fish are symbolic of men. Um, but the more important thing is the bread and the bread being the word. Um, now that we have that kind of idea, we're gonna move on to the next little section of this passage, Mark 8. Um, should be verse 8 through 10 next. Verse 8 says, And they ate and were satisfied. This is right after um, Jesus feeds all the people. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Remember that, there will be a test at the end. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Keep going to verses 11 through 15. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. I love that, because he's just like, always so fed up with this generation that's, you know, he's, it's almost like you guys just missed the five, 5,000 and 4,000 people I fed. And, you know, they come up because they're all off doing whatever. They come up to him afterwards and they're like, you know, give us a sign. Give us a sign that you are um, really God, really the Messiah. So he sighs deeply in his spirit and says, what, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So I'm going to camp out on those two ideas of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, and what those are and why Jesus warns so strongly to kind of avoid those things. So what is leaven? Leaven is like... The stuff that you put in bread when you're baking it gets all through. You don't need a whole lot to like work through your entire batch of dough and kind of causes the bread to rise. And so it's just an ingredient in baking bread. Not in itself a bad thing, right? We'll see that the disciples didn't quite get that, um, but that Jesus was trying to make a greater point with them. So leaven primarily in the Bible is in reference to false teaching or false belief that works its way into our lives. Jesus warns about two types of this false teaching, or the two kind of ditches on either side of the proverbial narrow road, you know. And he likens them to kind of the powers of the day. There was the religious powers, the Pharisees, and then there was the secular worldly powers being Herod. Um, and I think it's important that he kind of warns them of two different types, because there are two ways I think that we, we as believers can very easily lose our way in that sense. All right, where am I? So the leaven of the Pharisees. The Pharisees taught this version of godliness that had nothing to do with actual obedience and everything to do with the traditions and outward expressions that were designed to kind of build themselves up as that righteous standard. And 
We see the, the leaven of the Pharisees mentioned a couple other times in the Gospels. I wanted to point out a couple of those. So Luke 12, 1 through 3, says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling over one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So here, Jesus is telling the crowd to be that, what he, kind of what he means by leaven of the Pharisees. He's giving them this kind of one example. He's talking about their hypocrisy, their hypocrisy and the way that they have kind of exalted themselves and yet failed to obey, you know, even the same law that they held over everyone else's heads. In Matthew, he gives us another meaning of what this leaven of the Pharisees is. He says, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Uh, and this is actually Matthew's account of the same feeding of the 5,000, kind of moments right after. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak to you about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So we see him liken it to two things here, the hypocrisy and then the teaching itself. So it was basically the teaching and then the teaching that they themselves almost weren't following. So this is Matthew's recording of the same event. Um, And what's funny about this is the disciples, when Jesus starts warning about this, they, you know, immediately start discussing um, why they, like, they don't have any bread in the boat. They're like, they hear him say that, like, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And it's like they all just turn to each other and be like, oh, we don't have any bread. We don't have any bread, right? So no bread, no leaven. We don't have any leaven. We should be good, right? We're, we're not doing that. Um, and he has to kind of bring them back in here to like, that's not what I meant. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, and had to kind of lay it out a little more slowly for them to get that, hey, this isn't quite it. Here we're told that they understood that he was referring to the things that the Pharisees taught, including but not limited to their backwards idea of works and salvation. You know, they taught that works, and more importantly, the works that the Pharisees were doing, were the thing that kind of gave salvation and brought that favor with God, rather than the truth, which is that we cannot earn that salvation through works, but that those works are evidence of our faith. So they also taught these traditions that they themselves had kind of made up, right along with the actual word of God as though they were the same thing, and were leading people astray by them. We even see the influence of the false teaching that, of the Pharisees on the disciples by looking at their reactions to like the crowds in both Mark 6 and Mark 8 and the other accounts of this. What, what, did, they, what did they tell the crowds when they all kind of came up? Or what, were, what was their reaction to Jesus? They were like, hey, there is all these people. We don't have bread for them. Send them away. You know, send them to go get bread somewhere else. Um, we see it with the children that try to come to Jesus in Matthew 19. You know, they're like, he's too busy for you. He's too busy. We can't, you know, we can't be doing that right now. Um, Just go away. And they had this idea because the righteous standard of the day was these Pharisees who were built up to be the righteous standard and were too important for anyone else beneath them. And so we kind of see even that coming out in the disciples' lives. And I think it's something that obviously we as believers can, can find being a problem in our own lives um, and just need to be mindful of because it could be stuff that we're just all used to and don't really think about. So it's because their idea of righteousness still had a tint of this cultural standard that the most righteous people were like exalted, important people who couldn't be bothered by anyone more important or like more or less, in, less significant than themselves, um, that they kind of had that idea. And Jesus has to step in and challenge that. Okay. All right. So we've got, that's kind of the idea, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, That's kind of the idea of the leaven of the Pharisees, um, what that was that Jesus was warning his disciples about. Then we get to the leaven of Herod, which is the second part of this right here. And the leaven of Herod is different in a sense that it is still a very subtle thing that can work its way into the lives of a believer. Um, But this one doesn't have 
a as much of a religious grounding as it is um, a secular draw to kind of blend in or try to look like the culture. I hear that the leaven of Herod is referring to the constant influence of godlessness in the culture and the world around us. So this is what Paul says when he's referring to leaven, um, much in the same way that Jesus does, but I think Paul, um, here in 1 Corinthians, is talking about um, the leaven of Herod or of the secular world. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, we see that Paul writes this. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So in context, Paul is warning the church in Corinth about a situation that they've become numb to within their own body, where this is the part where someone had his father's wife, and Paul is like, what are you guys doing? You're indifferent about this. You don't care, like, or you don't notice it. Um, and so this church is kind of, he's challenging them on that, like, get this out from among you. Um, and that, I think, he refers to it as leaven and says a little leaven leavens the whole lump because that can spiral outward. You know, if the, ter- if the church is so um, complacent as to turn a blind eye to any amount of godlessness or worldliness, it's very easy for more to find its way in, for that to kind of snowball and just pile up on itself. Um, so that's why Paul gives them such a strong warning um, that very closely echoes that of Christ earlier. So Paul calls the church indignant in regards to their mistakes, and it is much an indictment on them as it is a warning to us. The reason Jesus so strongly warns about our need to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod is because we're never so righteous as to be above it. You know, we don't reach a point in our faith where we can't be influenced by these things anymore. This is why we should always be praying words like David in Psalm 139, where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try, my, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We have to be kind of checking ourselves and holding ourselves to this standard con- constantly, because it is very easy for us as sinful humans to you know, look at the Corinthian church, point fingers and say, oh yeah, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't, like, we know what the leaven of Herod is. We know that what worldly influence is, but would we? You know, we have to kind of go back, back to the word. This is kind of similar to the idea that I mentioned earlier of returning to Jesus daily for that bread, um, to not let ourselves go that way. And we see in our culture, um, this agenda, this is kind of the most visible way that I've seen this happening. Um, the cultural agenda that many Christians are even bowing to, um, where we see them kind of trying to set up a different standard of morality even than God's standard. We see them setting up, you know, love to be synonymous with acceptance. Um, that's kind of the highest, you know, moral thing that you can do in the culture today is to accept someone and to let them live out whatever their truth is. And we see that that's not, that's not biblical. That's not godly. Um, nor is it loving. We've seen the Lutheran church allowing and celebrating homosexuality. They're allowing homosexual pastors. They're welcoming all those people with open arms, saying that the Bible never condemned it. But it's just not true, right? We know the word of God is inerrant. We know where and why it says that those things are wrong. And it reminds me... The Lutheran church doing that, wouldn't you equate that to the Sadducees and Pharisees? How so? Because of bad teaching, yeah, by leaders and within the church, yeah. The the Herod part, I I agree mm-hmm. that too. Because it's not illegal, then therefore it must be moral and okay. Mm-hmm. You know, more on the government side than within the church itself. Yeah, yeah. I think you could definitely say that about both. Um, whereas where like with within the church, it's religious leaders kind of bowing to that. Yeah. Yeah, and so then you kind of get the leaven of Herod, the influence of the world, becoming what is taught by the religious leaders. Um, and I think that's a great point, Andrew, because that's especially dangerous. Uh, I think about when Paul tells the Corinthians, you know, there is sexual immorality among you, and even of a kind that the pagans don't tolerate. If you look at Muslims today, they don't tolerate a man to be with a man. They have very strict laws against homosexuality in some countries. You'll be put to death for that. And I was, as I was thinking about this, it's was like, how have we, in the church, gotten so far off to the point that we have a lower standard 
than those that don't even follow God. Too many years yeah. of turning the other cheek and Jesus would love first. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, right. The very, the very sneaky living. <laughs> to be fair, yeah. They, yeah, they've got some pretty terrible standards for sexuality in other areas. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was just an example. Okay. Um, that's the point, right? Is that leaven is sneaky. It's not going to be super out there. And like Andrew said, it can quickly become, it can quickly go from being influence of the world, getting in the church, and then being what the church is preaching. Um, and I think that's true because we have to make no mistake that both types of leaven are inherently spiritual and are driven by, driven by the principalities in the Bible that we're warned to fight against, right? We're told that our, our battles are not against flesh and blood, and this kind of thing is, I think, what it's warning us about. I was listening to a really good podcast recently that Eden had sent me, and we've been kind of talking back and forth about this idea. Um, there's this guy named Jonathan Kahn who's been interviewed, um, and his, like, teaching that he's been doing is talking about how these, like, ancient principalities, you know, we would say demons disguised as people's gods have been slowly working their way back into the world and how they're very much taking root in America right now. And it's really interesting, just the details, the, the connections are kind of unreal between what America is doing and the ancient worship of Baal, Asherah, Moloch. And I wish I had time to go through all of that, um, but if y'all want that podcast, I can send it to you later. Um, but it's just interesting and made me think about these things that we're turning a blind eye to that are very, very spiritual, whether or not we know it. Um, and even other churches that would call themselves you know, non-denominational or reformed or like your typical Orthodox Christian belief, um, they're falling painfully short in this area. Uh, our exhibit A from earlier this month is a pastor named Michael Todd in Oklahoma at Transformation Church. And some of you... Use that term loosely. What? Use that term loosely. <laughs> a guy in Oklahoma. Um, but earlier this month, there was this thing. And this is a pastor who has always kind of toted the line of going into worldliness to reach worldly people. Um, but I think there's a level of that that we really have to be careful with, and especially I would say doesn't belong in the church, because then you can get things like this. So what do we think we see here? Satanic ritual? Just a Grammys performance? Seen from hell itself? No, this is a church service, supposedly. Right, right. At least they got that going for them. This is, what's up? It was, and it was their Easter service. So for, for Easter, Michael Todd had his church put on this, whatever's going on, and it was basically this thing that was chock full of demonic imagery, like secular music. I think they were singing Kesha songs. They were, you know, doing all this stuff. And we look at this and go like, how is this church? This is wild. This is weird. This is outlandish. But, you know, it started with, just a little step too close to the world, just a little bit of leaven getting in to that whole group. And Michael and then Todd. More people in the seats giving more money, and then they went a little further and got more people right. in the seats and giving more money. Right. It's the danger of that seeker sensitive because the amazing thing about letting the world's influence into your heart is that you're going to start to want the same things as the world, right? You're going to want money, you're going to want more followers, you're going to want that. And this is a mega church at this point, so they're getting that. You know, they're doing what they're set up to do. The other part, if I can add to this specific mm -hmm. one, is they're being a little more deceiving by trying to push it off as, oh, we were just portraying the hell portion of things. Right, right. And that's, so what they, like, that's what they told everybody. They're trying to, yeah, act like they weren't doing what they were doing. Yeah, was like, oh, it's supposed to portray, like, how bad hell was and all this stuff and... It's just anyone that is really being you know, grounded in the word can look at this and say something is wrong. Even in an interview right before, and he said this in the sermon as well, um, when Todd was asked about this performance, you know, he was saying, we're going to go so far, like we're going to go crazy with this to reach the lost people. And when he was asked how far they were going to go, he said, we're going to do everything short of sin in order to reach. 
people. And it's just sad hearing it. Um, And also scary that pastors are um, wanting not only, you know, subtly pushing the lines, but on purpose doing this. And oops, didn't mean to switch slides on you. And so it's kind of this. What? Yeah, right. Maybe we, maybe we can't get off that. All right. But it is just this crazy, um, crazy idea how we get in the church to, you know, putting a woman on the cross in an Easter service, having people dress in all these weird, like, skin-tight leather costumes and run around singing secular songs, basically doing a Grammys performance. Um, but it's when that leaven gets in and starts to mess with the church. All right, that was a side trail. Um, back to Mark 8. We're going to pick up on chapter or verse 16 and go through the rest of this little passage that we're going through. So verse 16 says, And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And and for the 4,000, the seven loaves, I kind of made that backwards. For the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And so this is kind of where my um, studying of this passage came from a while back. Um, Eden and I were reading this at a coffee shop, and we got to this point that said, do you not yet understand? And we just kind of looked at each other and went, we do not understand. <laughs> and, but it's kind of funny, like, why does he give them a little pop quiz here? I told you all there'd be a test later. But do we not understand then? And so we decided we're going to look back and, like, we're going to get into this and figure out what is this, what is he talking about? What does he want them to understand here? Well, Jesus is trying to get them to understand a deeper truth behind the feeding of all these people that they just witnessed. So if you think back to where we started, the feeding of the 5,000 takes place near Bethsaida and was primarily a Jewish crowd. That is the group from which the disciples gathered the 12 baskets full of leftovers. So then the feeding of the 4,000 takes place in the region of the Decapolis and was a majority Gentile crowd. And this is the group from which they were sent to gather the seven baskets left over. The 12 baskets symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel and the gospel's coming first to the Jewish people through the law, prophets, and then eventually Jesus. So what about the seven baskets? If you look at Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, more numerous and mighty than you, And when the Lord gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. So back here we see who was inheriting, or who was not inheriting, who was inhabiting the promised land before the Jews, seven Gentile nations. And they would have still had that concept in mind. One of the things that I've always had kind of a hard time justifying is in the Old Testament when God commands his people to like come in and just wipe out all these nations, you know, and because because they're, you know, they're in our land. But what was the purpose of that? If you keep reading in Deuteronomy right after this, you'll see that God instructs them to eliminate these people. Um, the reason for that is that he doesn't want their pagan traditions and their pagan cultures to take their worship away from them or from him. And I think we've seen that in, you know, a couple of slides ago with the church putting on basically a Grammy's performance that was effectively a satanic ritual. You know, how do we get to that point? Well, it's the outside influence. And that's what God was trying to protect his people from. But that didn't mean he didn't still have a plan for these seven nations. So why does it make note that there are seven nations? I think it's because God, in his foreknowledge, always had a plan to eventually save these Gentiles as well. And we kind of see that happening now in Mark 8. I didn't do this. These slides decided to animate themselves. Uh, But here's the, those seven nations, kind of where they were in in the promised land. And so in the culture of Jesus's day, these seven nations were representative of all Gentiles. And that would have been, you know, where the, the disciples and the rest of the Jewish people's minds would have gone 
if you said anything about seven nations. Um, and so I think it's really cool when he kind of makes them pause after doing these miracles, he makes them pause and think about it. Like, what did I just have you do? What was the number of baskets you gathered? And we can kind of look at that and think, okay, wow, he made some extra, but we see that Jesus doesn't do anything on accident. He doesn't do anything without purpose. So even the leftover baskets were meant to teach and instruct his disciples later on that they were to go both to their people, but also to the rest of the world. We see this ultimate plan um, many times throughout the Bible. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But what order did Jesus do the miracles of the feeding thousands of people in? He did it for the Jews first and then for the Greek. So there's a perfect image of God's plan to provide that salvation to his people first, then to the Greeks. And this is how it was always supposed to be. Salvation came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And this is why Jesus performs the miracles, you know, first in Bethsaida and second in the region of the Decapolis. And I was also thinking about how, just how similar those two miracles are and how people have been confused at times on whether or not, you know, isn't this the same thing? You know, a lot of us, I think, probably grew up thinking, oh yeah, he fed the 5,000 that one time. Um, but he did the exact same thing twice because there's no distinction in the message. You know, there's no different bread of God that is given to, to one group as opposed to the other. There's no separate treatment for Jew or Gentile. There's simply an order, and both are receiving the bread of life. So we look at why the salvation comes in the order that it does. In John 11, or John 1, 11 through 13, it says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So throughout the Old Testament, we see God setting up his people to carry his covenant and to be his people. When the time comes to fulfill that covenant, they'd rejected it. But it had to be this way so that those who were hungry for salvation could receive it. And we see this again in Romans 11. This is Paul saying, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall, referring to the Jewish people? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So we see from all this that Jesus is revealing to his disciples his ultimate plan for salvation, spiritually and not necessarily physically, uh, both to the Jews and Gentiles alike. And they plan to use them to accomplish it. So thinking about these verses, if you think of the first time he came to feed the 5,000, he has compassion on them. For what reason? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were his people, but they didn't know their shepherd. Then he goes to the Gentile region, to the Decapolis, and these people are just hungry. They're hungry for his word. They've been walking around with him for three days, not eating anything because they're just that desperate to get the word of God. And that kind of leads me into the last couple of points I have. Um, I want to look at when, they, when it mentions that they had nothing to eat. I think that means physically that crowd had been with him for many days. You know, they were hungry, but they didn't care because they wanted his word. Were they hungry more so physically or more so spiritually? I think I mentioned earlier um, that he had, you know, compassion on the crowd um, in the same way we are to have compassion on the world around us that is lost because they really are starving. Not physically. Physically, we're doing fine for the most part in America. Today, we're surrounded by a generation of unbelievers who are starving for truth and looking for it in any way that it's being presented. And it's not terribly hard to look and see how they're looking for that truth. Um, obviously, me and my circle of influence being in college, I see this all the time. Classmates come to class. They're dead tired. They're half asleep. It's like, hey, man, how was your weekend? Oh, it was terrible, but I don't really remember it, so I don't know what happened. You know, they'll just come in after just a night of all this partying and just always kind of a, a humbling reminder to me that like these people need Jesus. These people need so much more. Um, they need the bread of life that we have. Um, it just kind of breaks my heart for them um, to see them just searching and 
grabbing at whatever form of truth they can come up with. Um, and so I would challenge all of us then to have our eyes open and on um, those areas where we see that happening. Where am I at? Um, then if you look at verse 6, where it says that he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Um, this is kind of the action of him feeding these people, how he got his provision out um, to the 4,000 people. So he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. The disciples are the ones who actually deliver the bread. In other words, we as followers of Christ now are the ones who take his word to the people around us. Um, and we're called to faithfully, for, both faithfully deliver that and faithfully guard it against the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, as we mentioned earlier. And so disciples are taking this bread to the people, but they're not the ones producing it, are they? It's coming from Christ. They're getting it from him. They're taking it to the people. So they're delivering, but they're not the source. They couldn't produce it on their own. They received it from Jesus. So how are we doing in our personal walks with God? Are we going back to him for that daily bread? Are we receiving from Jesus as much as we're trying to pour out and to give? I think it's an imperative that we do that as believers because you can't be out attempting to feed a hungry world when you haven't been receiving the food yourself. Um, I had a train of thought and it's gone now. We'll move on. Um, So in our personal walks, um, this should be a constant thing. Um, And I think, again, that's why the Lord's Prayer is structured the way it is, where he says to pray for your daily bread, your daily provision. You need it, but they need it also. And we shouldn't think that we can just go give everyone bread of, the bread of life without returning to its source because we can't produce life-giving words on its own. Um, even just like, you know, like Mark prayed earlier, that God would speak through me. I can't just sit up here and give you all great words and revelation from the Lord and all this stuff if I'm not steeped in the word myself. If I'm not going back to the word, you know, to get my bread of life, my encouragement for you, my anything that I would speak out of my mouth has to come from him. Okay, then we look at this kind of middle section. And what I wanted to point out was, again, when he says, watch out for this, the leaven. Um, Like I said a second ago, that is that guarding that's the guarding of the message or the bread that we're taking to people. We've been charged by this. We've been given it by Jesus. We have to protect it. If Transformation Church didn't convince you, let me try to convince you again. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Or in other words, the leaven of self-righteousness and the leaven of no righteousness. There's two sides that we can go with this. The leaven of self-righteousness exalts you as better than others, and the leaven of no righteousness molds you to look just like all the others. So you see that both are you-focused and both are meant for our comfort. Both are meant, one, to make us feel better about ourselves, the other, to make us feel better about ourselves. You know, either way is a form of spiritual self-help that's designed to make you feel better about yourself and is fundamentally just about you and you alone. It's not outward-focused. It's not loving. It's not anything that God has ever called us to be. And that is why Jesus warns, you know, so strongly multiple times against it. So disciples set an example in the way that they serve the 4,000. Go to Jesus, go to the people, repeat. With the end of the little passage here, um, actually, no, this is Mark 6. This is the feeding of the 5,000 before. Um, I think it's important that he tells them to come away by themselves to rest a while. Um, This is right after he sends them all out on kind of their first missionary journeys. They've been preaching, they've been teaching. um, And they come back to Jesus and he says, come by yourselves to a desolate place and rest. We need that godly rest. We need um, to take time just to spend with our creator. You know, this is part of returning to Jesus to get the bread. Um, You can't be filled up unless you're taking that time to rest and focus only on him. And we see that he has compassion on the crowd. But right before that, what's going on? The disciples are kind of seeing all these people and are like, oh my gosh, there's so many people. We just got done teaching everybody. We're tired. Jesus just like, send him to go get food. And I was thinking about this as I was getting ready. Um, and isn't that our attitude towards people that inconvenience us? Or people that interrupt 
even the good things that we do um, with friends. Like if I'm at school and I'm like, okay, I'm really, really busy right now. I have to get to Bible study. I know you're having a bad day, but I can't tell you about Jesus right now. I have Bible study in five minutes. <laughs> you know, and I've done that. I'm embarrassed to say I'm as bad at this about, as anybody, um, but we are just like that. We are that way. We're inherently self-focused. That's why um, the leaven is so attractive to us. This spiritual self-help is so misleading and so alluring is because our natural disposition is not to Christ, it's to ourselves. And so we can get that way. We can take these good things that we're doing, like the disciples here. Jesus was trying to lead them to go rest. They're like, okay, we need to go rest. This is good. This is going to be great. But then the crowd interrupts them. The crowd runs on foot across around the lake to beat them there. And what is their response? Jesus' response is to have compassion on them and to continue to teach. So I uh, make that point to say that we need to be interruptible. We need to be able to put down what we're doing, put down our ideas, our what's important, and serve the kingdom and feed those that come to us hungry and in need. And we see this anywhere. Um, I mentioned in school, but parents with children, if you're tired and you're, I've heard this from my parents many times, you know, you're going to be tired, you're going to be worn out, and your kids are going to come and they're going to need something. And it is, you know, it is spiritual, it is our spiritual um, task and headship as um, parents and those of us that are someday parents uh, to take that time out, to train and to equip them and to love them and to pour into them the same way we see Jesus pouring into these crowds. Okay. And then the last thing I wanted to mention is in verse 37, when he kind of responds to them. After they say, send these people into the villages, there's too many of them, they need to go buy food, what does Jesus tell them? He says, you give them something to eat. And any one of us is capable of giving the gospel to those around us. And if we've received that bread of life, we have something that is valuable to an unbeliever. We have something to offer them. We have good news that they either haven't heard or haven't accepted yet. And so we often excuse our inaction or our unwillingness to do that and to reach out and to feed those people. We excuse that by claiming the spiritual incompetence and saying, oh, somebody else will do it better. You know, I don't know enough about that. Someone else will do it better. Uh, or, or, you know, a pastor should do this. Someone that's wiser than me should do this. And while there are situations where those are wise things to do, to go to a wise counsel and to go seek that out, Every one of us is equipped well enough, um, if we know the Lord, to encourage and to build up. I was talking about this with a friend of mine that I've been meeting up with and discipling this semester. Um, and he is not new to his faith, but is newly pursuing and is newly um, kind of realizing that the way he was living isn't what he wants. And he's seeking wisdom and he's going after it. And I think it's awesome to just be able to see um, the hunger that he has for the word. Uh, but pretty early on, when I was just kind of getting a feel for um, him and how he was spiritually and what he was, um, how he was um, outreaching, I asked him that question. I was like, how, you know, how is your outreach? Who are you pouring into right now? Who are you encouraging? Who are you building up? Um, and he gave me kind of this answer of, oh, I just don't think I'm, you know, spiritually mature enough to do that. I don't think I'm, you know, ready to share the gospel. I told him, maybe not. Maybe you're not um, equipped to preach or to teach or to stand up on a stage. But you know Jesus. You know the gospel. I said, share that. It's a mindset that I get from a pastor friend of mine, Greg Johnson. He always tells us, what are you doing with what you already know? You know, any one of us can, um, any one of us can use what it is that we already know, um, even while we're getting built up. You know, as, as important as it is to go and get that spiritual food from Christ, and we always need to be doing that, it's really just a building up of ourselves and a trending towards that ditch of the leaven of Pharisees if we're only ever building up and we're never reaching out, we're never pouring out, we're never taking that bread of life that we've been so freely given and offering it to another. So you give something them. You give them something to eat. You take care of those that have come to you. I want to end with this. Um, it's a dear friend of my family's. Uh, when we moved to Texas in 2007, 
He was the most starkly atheist person I'd ever met. His name was Charlie Brown. I didn't make that up. Um, but he was a nice man, friendly, until you had mentioned Jesus, until you would bring up the gospel, and then he wouldn't have any of it. He'd been mad at God for his entire life, um, would yell at our lovely Hispanic neighbor when she'd be singing worship songs in her yard, um, and was just so abrasive against Christianity and just angry towards it. Um, and of all the people that a Pharisee would have looked at and said, thank you, God, that I am not like that man. You know, he was it. Hated God. Didn't want anything to do with him. Until one day he was confronted with his own brokenness, with the brokenness in his family, with the brokenness around him. And he showed up on our doorstep in tears, just asking my mom to pray for him. And so what would a disciple response be in this case? The church has something for you. Like, I think there's a church down the road if you want prayer. No, you give him something to eat. And so I remember my mom there praying for him. And I didn't know. I was like, why is the neighbor crying? I was six. Um, But it became this beautiful thing by which my parents eventually ministered to him. And now today, every time I walk in that old church and see him and his wife in the back standing there worshiping, it's just a beautiful reminder of simple obedience and the way that that transforms lives. And so I love that we can get this from the feeding of the 5,000, a story that otherwise is easy to gloss over, is easy to kind of see and think, yeah, that's really cool. Wow, good, good miracle, Jesus. Way to go. But I think it's so much deeper and so much more important when we can look at that and say, okay, wow, this was a picture of how God's ultimate plan for uh, Jew and Gentile alike for salvation was being worked, how Jesus laid out a perfect image of that, you know, 12 baskets for 12 nations and seven for seven nations, or 12 for the 12 tribes, seven for the seven nations. And then what our role is as the disciples, as the followers of Christ, to go and get that bread from Christ and deliver it to those around us. So that's all I got. I'll pray us out and then we can do whatever. I put a little end there so you all know it's the end. Okay, if y'all would pray with me though. Jesus, uh, we love you. We come to you this evening and just thank you for this group that you've put together. Thank you for the love that they have for you, Lord, um, the way that they pursue you and pursue each other so well. Uh, and I pray for all of us that you would keep us on our guard against, um, against the false teaching, the false things that the world would try and lead us into, Lord, um, the false morality, the false religion, um, all the things, Lord, that try and pull us subtly or not so subtly away from you. Jesus, I just pray that you would give us strength to reject that, to stand strong against it, to train our children to do the same, to train our brothers and sisters to do the same, Lord. And as we get that spiritual bread here, to take it to those that need it, Lord. Um, Even just speaking about this, I'm reminded of um, dozens of people that I could be sharing that with daily, and I think we all are. Um, So Lord, I just pray for those people that you would um, give us boldness and strength to go after and to reach them with the word and just pour into those broken, hurting places, Lord, that are so hungry for you. Um, I can't help but think they wouldn't be the people that would follow you around for three days without eating if they heard you talking. Um, So let us be your words to those people. Let us be your light. We love you, Jesus. And we pray over just the rest of our time this evening. And you just bless our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.